Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at podgo.co. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of Four Quarters with Josh McKinney. It's the day before Thanksgiving, so first of all, happy Thanksgiving to everybody out there. Hope you have a blessed holiday week and day tomorrow. Today, it's going to be just me. I'm going to start off with a full court press. I'm going to share my thoughts on the Charlotte Hornets and some of the moves they've made recently, both in the NBA draft and free agency. And then I'm going to get into another fearless forecast as I make my NFL picks for week 12 of the season. After that, this day in sports history returns. And then I'm going to end things with McKinney's mailbag as I answer some questions. And actually, these questions were posed to me by past guests on Twitter. I reached out to them, and several of them answered back with some great questions. So I'm going to answer several of those today in the final segment. Thanks for joining us for Four Quarters with Josh McKinney. As I said, episode 29 today, 30 next week, and then we're going to be off for a little holiday break and come back at you in 2021. But right now, let's get to that full court press. All right, here we go. Like I said in the open, today on Full Court Press, I am talking about the Charlotte Hornets and the week that they have had. Obviously, last Wednesday was the virtual NBA draft, the first of its kind. And the Hornets had the number three pick in the first round. People were going into it thinking, who are they going to get? Is it going to be James Wiseman, Anthony Edwards? And those were the first two picks. So at number three, the Hornets went with LaMelo Ball, younger brother of current NBA star Lonzo Ball, who's with the Pelicans, and obviously son of LeVar Ball, who has been very outspoken. If you are not familiar with LeVar quick Google search will fill you in as how outspoken that man is. Now, as I've mentioned on past pods, I am both a Hornets fan and a fan of whatever team J.J. Redick is on, so I'm a fan of the Pelicans. I've become very familiar with Lonzo Ball, and I'll admit, not being a fan of LeVar and his brash claims he would make, like saying that he could, for instance, defeat Michael Jordan one-on-one. Crazy. The guy barely averaged two points in college, and I'm not Hating on him, I'm sure he's got some game. His sons obviously do. But we're talking about MJ, the greatest of all time, or one of the greatest of all time at the very least. But anyway, I was not a huge fan of Lonzo just because of the way his dad was. But as I watched him with the Pelicans, I saw how much he improved. I think he's really worked a lot with J.J. Redick, for instance, on his three-point shooting and got better at that. Did not translate to the bubble after the time off but the guy's a great passer and even though his offensive game is still a work in progress he definitely has potential and has a place in the NBA and hope for the same from his brother who as I've heard is not a great outside shooter but could develop that in the future I mean the guy is only 19 years old so 
a ton of potential there and a great chance. I'm happy the Hornets went that way because it was kind of a sexy, flashy pick, if you will, which the Hornets are not known for doing. Michael Jordan has not been known for drafting well. I think this was a great pick at number three. You get a 6'7 guy in LaMelo who can play point guard, shooting guard, small forward. Could even see some time at power forward in certain lineups. But he's been playing overseas the past couple of years against grown men and applying his trade over there. He chose to do that rather than go to college, which I would prefer if we allowed guys to come straight out of high school into the pros. But because of the way it is, I don't blame him for saying, hey, I'm going to go overseas. My future is in the NBA, and now he's going to get a chance with the Charlotte Hornets. Excited. think it was a great pick. Really would have been dumb probably of the Hornets to pass on him there because they could really use a playmaker like that. I've heard, like his brother, he's a great passer. And with that size and playing point guard or playing wherever he may play, really got a lot of potential and can't wait to see how it plays out. Now, early in the second round, number 32 draft pick, the Hornets drafted one of my Duke boys, Vernon Carey Jr., who played center at Duke last year. Six foot ten, can shoot from three, but is a monster around the basket, and I think he's got a lot of potential as well. Very versatile, like I said, a great inside-outside game. If they wanted to go with a big lineup, could potentially play some power forward, but will probably mostly be a center for the Hornets as one of their backups. Obviously, Cody Zeller should be the starter there, you would think. And also, they just re-signed Bismack Biombo on Sunday. And he's a great, especially on the defensive end and rebounding. So I think you'll see him and Zeller get the majority of the time. But Vernon Carey has a chance to break into the rotation somewhere and has tremendous upside. It seems like three years ago since he played at Duke, Instead of like earlier this year because of this pandemic and everything that's gone on and how crazy 2020 has been. But really looking forward to what Vernon can bring. Happy we got a Duke guy because the Hornets are known for a lot of times picking UNC guys rather than Duke guys. Even though a lot of times, apart from a few guys, it doesn't even pan out in the pros for these guys. But still, the amount of Duke and Kentucky guys you see in the pros is amazing. And uh, UNC as well, got to give them props for that and some other schools. Speaking of Kentucky, Nick Richards at number 42 was the next guy that the Hornets ended up with. This actually was a pick that went to the Pelicans but was traded to the Hornets for a future draft pick. So they get another big guy in Nick Richards. Vernon Carey 6'10", I believe. Nick Richards is 6'11". So another guy who... I am not super familiar with, but I do know that he gives them another young, big, who I've heard is is very versatile inside as well. Uh, That was actually in reading some stories after the draft, recapping the Hornets draft. Versatile was a word used to describe what they were able to do in this year's draft. So Nick Richards there at 42 from the Pelicans. And then the Hornets' last pick in the draft came late in the second round, number 56. They drafted... Guard Grant Riller out of the College of Charleston. Looks like Riller can play both guard spots and a guy who can shoot and also distribute. So we'll see if he even makes the team. Don't know. A lot of second-round picks do not end up making it in the NBA. But 
who knows? I mean, it's a great late-round pick, I think. The Hornets do have a lot of guards. They've got Devontae Graham. They've got Terry Rozier. So those are two guards they've got. They've got Malik Monk and some other names. Uh, They've got a lot of young talent on this team. I think this draft makes them better, and they've got a chance to compete for a playoff spot. I, I really think that. And a big reason why I believe that came on Saturday, three days after the draft. The Hornets went out and made a big splash by signing Gordon Hayward to a four-year, $120 million deal. Now, Hayward, you might recall, had a nasty injury a couple years ago in his debut with the Boston Celtics after coming over from the Utah Jazz and returned the following year. Didn't look quite like the same player, but this past year with Boston, was a big reason for their success and maybe didn't get a lot of publicity given the other guys they have with Jason Tatum, very warranted. Kimba Walker going over from Charlotte, great to see him play well and make it past the first round of the playoffs and deeper into the playoffs as the Celtics made it to that Eastern Conference Finals where they lost to the Miami Heat. Other guys on the Celtics as well that got a lot of publicity, but Hayward was solid. Averaged 17.5 points a game, 6.7 rebounds, which is a career high, and 4.1 assists. Tied for the second highest mark of his career. Shot over 38% from three and right at 50% from the field and over 85% from the free throw line. And hard to believe that he's been in the league for 10 years, but he has. I remember him being a star at Butler when they played Duke in the 2010 National Championship game and nearly pulled that off at the end. My Blue Devils pulling it out by one point. But Hayward is another guy who at 6'7 can play either forward spot, probably more naturally a small forward, but in today's NBA a lot of teams play small and so could see some time at power forward very likely. Great guy off the court. I think he's a great veteran presence for the Hornets and a guy who should lead them in scoring. I know Devontae Graham had a great year last year, a breakout year, but really happy to see the Hornets go out and make a splash by getting someone of Hayward's caliber. Once I saw that he wasn't going to re-sign with the Celtics, I thought, man, it'd really be nice if the Hornets went after him. Didn't think they actually would. Happy they did. I know the Indiana Pacers were in on him as well, but he ends up going to the Hornets, and can't wait to see what he can do. A lot of people are scared because of his injury history and giving him that big of a contract, thinking the Hornets overpaid for Hayward. But to me, it needed to be done. And if it all pans out the way I think it could, people will look back on this with very, very happy thoughts. The Hornets did waive Nick Batum, a contract albatross they've been in for several years now, and a guy who they expected big things out of and really was just not good enough to be a second option next to Kimball Walker for years while he was there, and just did not pan out, basically. I mean, period. Just did not pan out. And so waived him to clear up a little bit of cash, but I don't think the same will be true of Hayward. They're totally different players, and Hayward's the guy who has the potential to come in and be your leading scorer, but is not a selfish guy. Very team first. Can pass the ball well and obviously coming off a career high in rebounding, can shoot the ball inside and out. So another versatile player to the Hornets. And yeah, as I've said several times, can't wait to see how it pans out along with these draft picks. I'm very excited 
for the Hornets, which I've not been able to say for a while. I mean, I enjoyed watching Kimba Walker play while he was here. The team was fun to watch when I watched them last year. I'll be honest, I did not watch every game. But when I had some free time, I would try to catch the Hornets. And definitely a lot of building blocks for the future for them. And some more that they've added now. And and Gordon Hayward slotting in in the starting lineup. We'll see if LaMelo's a starter right off the bat. You would think so. We're going to see what the Hornets have very soon because the season tips off December 22nd this year, 72-game NBA season. Merry Christmas (laughs) coming with the NBA. Very excited to see what happens and have a feeling I'll be watching more Hornets games this year because I'm finally happy with a draft that Michael Jordan has had. He's always had kind of that monkey on his back or whatever, so to speak, of not being able to draft well with the teams he's been with. He's drafted with the Wizards in the past and obviously played there the last couple years of his career. But finally, I think he's done well with this, and we'll see. I mean, obviously it's only on paper, but I really like the guys they picked up because the Hornets need more big men. They need a player of LaMelo's stature and a guy who can do the things he can do. Maybe Riller cracks the squad. Who knows? He may impress And Gordon Hayward, obviously, a guy who can give you a lot both on and off the court and is not going to mess with team chemistry at all. Can't wait to see what the Hornets have. That being said, now I've got to make my NFL picks in Fearless Forecast. Week 12 of the NFL season has arrived, which means six weeks left. And obviously, Thanksgiving coming up tomorrow. That means three games tomorrow for Thanksgiving. We'll get to those picks in just a moment. So far this year, with my fearless forecast NFL picks, I am 106-54. and I went 7-7 seven and seven last week, but a great record overall. And in my ESPN Fantasy Pigskin Pick'em, I am in like the 94th percentile, so doing very well overall. If you haven't noticed, I don't always make the picks on the show. A lot of the times I make it on Twitter. I use the hashtag FearlessForecast. I'll show the hashtag FourQuartersPod, as I always do for this podcast. And so, going forward, this is probably the last Fearless Forecast we'll have this year with the last episode of this year coming up next week. So you can follow me there. I'll continue to make those picks for the final five weeks of the NFL season. As I said, 106-54 and my record. Let's look at what we've got for week 12 of the NFL season. First of all, on Thanksgiving, we'll start off with those three games. We'll have the Houston Texans at the Detroit Lions. The Lions always play on Thanksgiving, but coming off a 20 to nothing loss to the Carolina Panthers this past Sunday did not look good at all, while Houston defeated the New England Patriots for their third win, their first win against someone not the Jacksonville Jaguars. I'm going to go with Deshaun Watson and the Houston Texans. I think their defense gets after Stafford and Detroit, just like they did the Patriots, and causes problems, and the Texans pull it off. The next game, as always on Thanksgiving, the Washington football team taking on the Dallas Cowboys. Before this past week, probably would have went with Washington. Both teams are 3-7. and seven. The Giants are also 3-7. and seven. The Eagles are 3-6-1 and one and leading that NFC East. So it is wide open. We'd love to see Washington pull it off, but I think Dallas wins. They got Andy Dalton back. He looked good. They beat the Minnesota Vikings, who had been playing well as of late. So I'm going to go with Dallas at home on Thanksgiving. 
final Thanksgiving game should be the best game of the day. The only game of the day where we'll have winning teams playing. So the Baltimore Ravens traveling to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Huge rivalry. They're going to try to end the Steelers' undefeated streak. They're 10-0 and right now. Don't see it happening. I'm going to pick Pittsburgh at home, even though the Ravens will obviously keep it close. They had a great chance to beat Pittsburgh a few weeks ago. Came up short. They've been struggling a little bit as of late. Lost to the Patriots. Lost to the Titans. Not that they're losing to terrible teams, but a couple games you would have thought maybe they would have been favored in. I'm going to go with Pittsburgh at home, and I think they go to 11-0. Next up, we move to Sunday's games. First of all, Las Vegas Raiders traveling to the Atlanta Falcons. I'm going to go with the Raiders. This is a team that I don't think anybody wants to play. They have a pretty decent defense. They can put points up. Derek Carr's played well. They nearly beat the Chiefs for a second time this season. They're the only team to beat the Chiefs. So I do think they go into Atlanta and beat the Falcons, who are at 3-7 and seven and at the bottom of the NFC South. Next up, 3-7, and seven, Los Angeles Chargers travel to the 7-3 and three Buffalo Bills. I'll go with the Bills at home for this game, even though the Chargers are good at staying close. And Justin Herbert's been great at quarterback as a rookie this year. I'll talk more about him in a later segment in the show, but I do think it's a pretty close game, but Josh Allen and the Bills will find a way to win this ballgame. Then we've got the New York Giants at 3-7, and seven, traveling to the 2-7-1 and one Cincinnati Bengals, who unfortunately lost Joe Burrow for the season earlier this week to an injury. That kind of makes it a little bit easier for me to pick the Giants to win this ballgame and keep pace there in that dreadful NFC East. They played better as of late and have had some close losses early in the year. Could be a totally different season for them, but I've got the Giants on the road. Speaking of road teams winning, 7-3 Browns traveling to the 1-9 Jacksonville Jaguars, who I believe have lost nine straight since winning their opener. They'll make it 10 here. Browns win on the road, and in a theme this week, another road team gets a victory. After that, matchup in the AFC South. The Tennessee Titans and the Indianapolis Colts in Indy. Both teams are 7-3. The Colts won the first matchup, and I picked the Titans there. I'm picking the Colts here at home. Phillip Rivers has played well. They've looked great. Got a solid defense as well. It will probably go to the Titans because usually between these two teams, whoever I pick does not win. But I'm going to go with the Colts. Next up, the 6-4 Miami Dolphins at the 0-10 New York Jets, who have officially been eliminated from playoff contention already. I've got the Dolphins winning this one. They benched Tua late last week, but plan to move forward with him as starter. Doesn't matter who they have at quarterback, they're going to beat the Jets and remain in the playoff hunt and go to 7-4. After that, the 4-7 Carolina Panthers visit the 4-6 Minnesota Vikings, two teams whose playoff hopes are on life support right now, still trying to hang in there. I think the Vikings take this one at home, even though the Panthers got a pretty solid performance from P.J. Walker. Their defense was great Sunday against Detroit. We hope to see Teddy Bridgewater back for the Panthers against his former Vikings team, and that could be some motivation for him. But I do think the Vikings win. The Panthers have struggled against the run at times this year, and I think Dalvin Cook is going to be tough for them to stop. So for that reason, close game, but the Vikings pull it out. Next up, Arizona Cardinals at 6-4, and four, visiting the 4-6 four and six New England Patriots, who, speaking of playoff, hopes being on life support, 
even more difficult, I think, in the AFC to make the playoffs. But the Cardinals play in the toughest division in football, arguably, the NFC West, and we're a team that I said to watch out for. So why I hope New England wins this ball game because I still want to see Cam make the playoffs or at least continue his solid play and get some more victories. I do think the Cardinals win it. Would not be shocked either way because New England has proven it can hang in there with anybody. And it's just, can they pull it out? Don't know if they can stop Kyler Murray enough in that Arizona offense. So I'll go with Arizona, another road team. Then we've got the 8-2 New Orleans Saints against the 4-6 Denver Broncos. It'll be Taysom Hill getting the start again for New Orleans and moving to 2-0 as a starter for New Orleans because I just don't see the Broncos winning this ball game, even though they got a win last game. They've kind of been a letdown for a lot of people, I think, as a lot of people thought they were going to be much better than they are. And currently 4-6, and six, the Saints continue to remain in first in the NFC South and biding their time till Drew Brees comes back. But Taysom Hill is going to be tough for Denver to deal with, and the Saints are going to win another road team. Then we've got the 4-6 San Francisco 49ers visiting the 7-3 Los Angeles Rams. Two more NFC West teams, and the Rams obviously tied with Seattle at the top of the division right now, a game ahead of Arizona. Can't count out the 49ers, who have had a lot of injuries this year, but have pulled off some big wins as well. But I do think the Rams win this. Their defense is just so tough. Gave the Buccaneers a really difficult time in the second half of their Monday night football win. And I think the Rams win it at home. Speaking of the Buccaneers, they'll be hosting the Kansas City Chiefs. The Chiefs at 9-1, the Bucs at 7-4. I think the Chiefs hand the Bucs their second consecutive loss because these Chiefs just might be the best team in football again coming off their Super Bowl win last year, first in 50 years. I just cannot go against them, even though a lot of times I say it's hard to go against Tom Brady. It's a little different now. At times, he's still adjusting to being in a new place. Still a phenomenal quarterback, but my goodness, Patrick Mahomes, what more can you say about he and the Chiefs? They continue to find ways to win, and I think they win this one on the road. Next up, 5-5 five and five Chicago Bears, who have been in a slide, taking on the Green Bay Packers, who are 7-3 and three in Green Bay. Going to go with Aaron Rodgers and the Packers, coming off the loss to the Indianapolis Colts this past week. In overtime, I think the Packers get back on track here, continue to keep their stranglehold on the NFC North, and get their eighth victory. Not much more to say. The Bears have been sliding. The Packers have been kind of up and down, but overall have been solid. So I think they win at home. And then we go to Monday night. The Seattle Seahawks at 7-3, traveling to the 3-6-1 Philadelphia Eagles. Again, I'm going to go with the road team. So that's nine road teams I've got winning this week, if I did my math correctly. Yeah, I think the road teams dominate this week. Can't pick against the Seahawks here. I mean, they have struggled a little more recently. Their defense has given up a lot of points, but you talk about struggles. Carson Wentz has really had his fair share of them this year for the Eagles. And as a team, even though they're in first place, they're in the worst division in football. And Seattle is in probably the toughest or one of the toughest divisions in football. And so got to go with Seattle on the road. Road Warriors this week, I think. I've got a lot of road teams winning. And as I said at the beginning of this segment, continue to follow me on Twitter at SuperJMac32. Always make my picks there. 
if I do not make them on the show, I've been doing it throughout the year. You can follow along. I put my record on there each week and all my picks. So we'll see what's going to happen. Week 12 coming up, three Thanksgiving games. Excited for that. And hopefully I do well this week. I've had several double-digit win weeks this season, so very pleased overall with how I've done. Kind of been a little tougher as of late, but a new week and really excited about Thanksgiving, as I said. That's going to do it for Fearless Forecast, my NFL picks for week 12. Now, let's get a little history lesson. It's time for this day in sports history. We start this week's This Day in Sports History with a couple of notable births. First of all, on November 25th, 1914, future New York Yankees legend Joe DiMaggio was born in Martinez, California. A 1955 inductee into the National Baseball Hall of Fame, the man called the Yankee Clipper spent his entire Major League Baseball career with the Yankees from 1936 to 42 and 1946 to 51, so 13 seasons in New York. And DiMaggio won nine World Series championships and appeared in the All-Star Game all 13 seasons. A three-time American League Most Valuable Player who holds the record for the longest hitting streak at 56 consecutive games, DiMaggio batted 325 in his career with 2,214 hits, 361 home runs, and 1,537 RBIs in 1,736 career games. DiMaggio's nine career World Series titles are second all-time behind fellow Yankee legend Yogi Berra, who won 10. An all-time great center fielder, DiMaggio was one of 10 outfielders named to MLB's All-Century team in 1999, alongside Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, Ted Williams, Willie Mays, Mickey Mantle, Ty Cobb, Ken Griffey Jr., Pete Rose, and Stan Musial. We move ahead to our next notable birth, which came on November 25, 1940, when future NFL head coach and NASCAR team owner Joe Gibbs was born in Moxville, North Carolina. A member of both the Pro Football Hall of Fame and the NASCAR Hall of Fame, the latter as a 2020 inductee, Joe Gibbs is most known in the NFL as the coach of the then Washington Redskins, now the Washington football team, from 1981 to 1992 and again from 2004 to 2007. Gibbs posted a career regular season record of 154 and 94, good for a 62.1 winning percentage. In NASCAR, he owns and operates Joe Gibbs Racing and has since 1991. The team's headquarters are in Huntersville, North Carolina, and his team currently includes Cup Series drivers Denny Hamlin, Kyle Busch, Martin Truex Jr., and Christopher Bell. Joe Gibbs Racing has won five Cup Series championships and has also won two Xfinity Series titles. Their current Xfinity Series drivers are full-timers Daniel Hemrick, Brandon Jones, and Harrison Burton, along with part-timers Kyle Busch and Denny Hamlin, who, as I said, also compete in the Cup Series. Next up, we go to November 25, 1961, when the NBA's Bob Cousy became the second player ever to score 15,000 career points as his Boston Celtics defeated the New York Knicks 116-96 at the original Boston Garden. 
Kuzi led the Celtics on that day with 22 points on 10 of 17 shooting and 2 of 4 from the free throw line, and the point guard also dished out 5 assists. Now 92 years old, the Manhattan, New York native won 6 NBA titles with Boston, including 5 straight from 1959 to 1963, while also being named the 1957 NBA Most Valuable Player and appearing in 13 consecutive All-Star games from 1951 to 1963. Nicknamed the Houdini of the Hardwood for his above-average ball handling skills, Cousy was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 1971. He averaged 18.4 points per game, 7.5 assists per game, and 5.2 rebounds per game in his 14-year NBA career, playing 924 total games, including 917 with the Celtics from 1950 to 1963, and seven games with the Cincinnati Royals during the 1969-70 season when he came out of retirement after six years out of the league. Our final piece of information for this day in sports history happened on November 25, 1979, when Pat Summerall and John Madden broadcasted a game together for the first time as the NFL's Minnesota Vikings beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 23-22 at Tampa Stadium. The duo of Summerall and Madden called games together for 22 years and broadcasted eight Super Bowls together, five for CBS and three for Fox. Their first time calling a game together actually came about due to Summerall's then-regular partner, Tom Brookshear, having a family commitment that led to Madden replacing him on the telecast. Although Madden and Summerall didn't become full-time partners until almost two years later. Summerall and Madden were also involved in the NFL prior to becoming broadcasters. Summerall was a kicker for the NFL's Detroit Lions, Chicago Cardinals, and New York Giants from 1952 to 1961, while Madden was a practice squad member of the Philadelphia Eagles in 1958 before becoming a college coach and then an NFL coach for the Oakland Raiders from 1969 to 78. Madden posted an overall record of 103-32-7 in the regular season a 76.2 winning percentage, and led the Raiders to a win over the Minnesota Vikings, 32-14 in Super Bowl XI in 1977. That's it for this day in sports history. Now let's move in to McKinney's Mailbag. That's right, that's right, that's right. McKinney's Mailbag is back, and like I said before, this week I reached out to previous guests on the show, and actually one other person, who follows me on Twitter also asked me a question. But for McKinney's Mailbag, I just answer questions from the listeners normally. This time, like I said, from former guests of the show. Let's get right into it because I've got a lot to get to. Scott Delafave, if you'll remember, was back on one of the first episodes of Four Quarters with Josh McKinney. Huge Buffalo Bills fan. His Buffalo Bills, one of the top teams in the AFC this year. But he asked me to give out my mid-season awards in the NFL. So, obviously, we're through 11 weeks, entering week 12. These are my picks for several of the awards that will be handed out at the end of the year. Now, for MVP, we'll start there. Russell Wilson, I think, would have been the easy answer a couple weeks ago because, you know, it's become a thing. Let Russ cook, and he's really led the Seattle Seahawks to a great season. 
and one of the worst defenses, if not the worst, in the NFL. Russell has turned the ball over more in recent weeks. It was up to 10 interceptions for the season, but 30 touchdown passes as well. So that's hard to ignore. I don't think the Seahawks would be where they're at without him because they play in one of, if not the toughest division in football, definitely the toughest, I would say, in the NFC. So I've got to go with Russ, even though Patrick Mahomes continues to play at a high level and could very well win his second MVP. And a guy who has never gotten an MVP vote is Ben Roethlisberger of the Pittsburgh Steelers, who are undefeated, 10-0. and So hard to argue with that. He's only thrown five interceptions and over 20 touchdown passes. And then Aaron Rodgers, even though Green Bay lost to the Colts, who are one of the better teams as well in the AFC this year, it was an overtime loss, and Rodgers, like Ben, has not turned the ball over much and never really does. So could see any of those guys winning it. I do think it goes to a quarterback again, but I think Russell deserves it more than the others at this point. We'll obviously see what happens in the last six weeks. Offensive player of the year, we're going to stay in the NFC West. I think Kyler Murray, quarterback for the Arizona Cardinals, should get it. That guy is just a video game-like player to watch. I said to look out for the Cardinals this year when we were previewing the NFL a couple months ago, and they have not let me down. They beat the Seahawks once and nearly beat them again. So right there in the thick of things in the NFC West, and Kyler Murray's a big reason why. Dalvin Cook for the Minnesota Vikings deserves a shout-out. The Vikings obviously lost to the Dallas Cowboys this past week to fall to 4-6, and six, but had been on a roll before that, and Dalvin Cook a big reason why. Defensive player of the year. I'm going to go with T.J. Watt from the Pittsburgh Steelers. One of the best, if not the best, defenses in the NFL and a big reason for the Steelers' 10-0 start. And T.J. Watt's been phenomenal, younger brother of J.J., and obviously another Watt brother also in the league, Derek. So they're funny to watch in the Subway commercials, but TJ, a beast on the field, just like his brothers. So I think he deserves it, but not by much. I mean, Aaron Donald and the Rams have been a solid team this year, and he has continued to wreak havoc on opposing offensive lines. And Miles Garrett from the Cleveland Browns, even though he's currently dealing with COVID-19, has played well this year. Obviously, he had the moment last year where he tried to hit Pittsburgh Steelers backup quarterback Mason Rudolph with a helmet and was suspended for the rest of the year, came back this year, but has been solid. Still, I give it to T.J. Watt. He's my pick. Coach of the year, Mike Tomlin for the Pittsburgh Steelers deserves a great shout-out because obviously, like I've said, they're undefeated. I would give it to Brian Flores of the Miami Dolphins. I know they lost this past week, but they went to Tua recently. Their defense has been solid, and they really got on a roll here right before that loss. So even though they lose to the Broncos, I think it's Brian Flores. I think he's one of the best coaches, honestly, in the NFL, and I've not been the only one to say that. Several analysts have been high on him. I think he deserves it just barely over Mike Tomlin, who is doing a great job and is always underrated, as we've said on a past episode of the show. Comeback player of the year, there's no other pick to me except Alex Smith, who is currently the starter for the Washington football team, suffered what many thought would be a career-threatening injury, worked his way back, E60 did a great piece on him that you need to check out if you haven't seen it. It's phenomenal. 
and just rooting for that guy. I was hoping he would somehow find his way into the starting lineup for Washington. He has, uh, unfortunately, injuries to others. But Alex Smith, that story is great. If that story did not exist, it's Big Ben. Ben Roethlisberger, as I mentioned, should be an MVP candidate as well. But is my next guy in that comeback player of the year. I still think it goes to Alex Smith, regardless of how Washington plays the rest of the year. They're still in it in the dreadful NFC East, but we'll see how that turns out. But either way, just what he's able to do to even be walking and to now be playing is just incredible. And that story is phenomenal. I thought it would be Cam Newton before the year. He has played well at times this year and has been pretty solid in my estimation. But obviously, four and six for New England. I do take team results into account for the most part, unless we're dealing with a situation, obviously, like Alex Smith, where I'm going to give him that award as the comeback player of the year because of what he's been through and what he's overcome. Offensive rookie of the year, Justin Herbert of the Los Angeles Chargers. I think I would have put Joe Burrow second in that before his injury, which will end his season, unfortunately. So I think that makes it even easier call to give it to Herbert, who has been great as the Chargers starting quarterback and has really made that team a tough out this year out there in the AFC. There are some other guys you've got to mention. The Chiefs running back, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, has been incredible and has given them another weapon, <laughs> like Patrick Mahomes needs more. And there are other rookies who have been doing a great job as well on both sides of the ball, but I think Justin Herbert's the Offensive Rookie of the Year. As far as Defensive Rookie of the Year, I'd give it to Patrick Queen of the Baltimore Ravens, linebacker there right now. But that's a closer race than the Offensive Rookie of the Year to me. You could see Antoine Winfield Jr. of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers win that, or maybe even Chase Young for Washington. I think he was really maybe leading this award earlier in the year, but Patrick Queen has kind of taken over in my estimation. So I've got him as the defensive rookie of the year at this point. Okay, that took a little bit of time. Let's get to the next one. Matthew Atkins asked me the following. He said, what's your favorite song slash singer? Singer was easy. Always been a huge Justin Timberlake fan. Everything the guy does, I love it. Love his falsetto. Love the majority of his songs. That said, don't really have a song of his I would consider my favorite. I like so many of them. But another guy I really like is NF. His song, The Search, is the current Raw theme song for the WWE's Monday Night Show. And I love that one. I've probably liked Paid My Dues even better. And so I'd say that's probably my current favorite song, even though there are others and it may change based on the day. But as of right now, that's a great pump-up song right before I go out and play basketball. So I'll go with Paid My Dues by NF. Favorite song, favorite singer, Justin Timberlake. Just a phenomenal entertainer. Would love to see him in concert one day. And then Matthew also asked me, what's the coolest place you've ever visited? This was a much harder question to answer, and I think I'm going to go with uh, my wife and I have been on two cruises to Mexico for our honeymoon, and then one later on the second cruise we went on, we did an excursion where we went into some underwater caves in Mexico, and that was a lot of fun, just exploring down in there. So I think that's probably the coolest place I've visited is those underwater caves in Mexico. The cruise was fun itself. You know, you obviously get to eat a lot and be waited on. So that's a lot of fun. Came in second in a sports trivia contest on our last cruise as well. Would have probably come in first if the other guy didn't know more about hockey than I did. That was really the separator. 
but did very well and was one of only two people to get double-digit questions correct. So anyway, enough of toot my own horn. Underwater caves in Mexico. Brian Chandler, another former guest, asked me, is a hot dog a sandwich? No, I do not consider a hot dog a sandwich. Some people do. There's a podcast about it that I know is associated with Good Mythical Morning, which my wife and I love. Rhett and Link do a great job, their whole team, and they've got a lot of different spinoffs from that, and they debate things like this. But no, I do not consider a hot dog a sandwich. Not going to go into any more detail. I just don't. (laughs) And then he also asked me, if I took Rob Manfred's job, what is one thing I would implement? And so Rob Manfred is the commissioner of baseball, who a lot of people do not care for at all. At first, I thought maybe universal designated hitter, but I think that's on the way anyway. Mine would be computerized strike zone. And I know a lot of old school people would not agree with this change. A lot of newer school thinkers are on board with it. I've always been on board with the computerized strike zone. I mean, we have the technology to show the strike zone during games anyway. Why not use that? Send a signal to a guy who's still at the plate as the umpire, ball or strike, and you would have the same zone for every hitter in that case. And so I like that. I really do. I like the idea of computerized strike zone for Major League Baseball. Next up, Nikki G., one of the great female guests I've had on the show, asked me to rank the order of Starburst flavor preferences, original flavors only, from best to worst. I had to do some research, so I bought a big bag of Starburst to remind myself of what I like best. Now, Nikki said she liked the lemon best, and the cherry was the worst. I wanted to agree, Nikki, with that, but as I ate a couple of each, I ended up coming to the conclusion that strawberry is my favorite Starburst original flavor. Orange is second, lemon third, and then cherry fourth. There's not a huge separator between strawberry and orange, And then lemon is also very solid. And I liked them all. So I don't hate any. But I would go strawberry, orange, lemon, cherry. In order of the original flavors, Starburst preferences. Next, I got a tweet from One and Done Radio. Who, like I said, the one that has not been on the show. But wanted to ask a question. They asked me favorite soda and why. And said, you know, they don't drink them. But it used to be Sprite for them. Uh, I used to drink Sprite a ton growing up. That was my go-to. It's become Coke just because usually when I have soda and I don't drink as much as I used to, it's to wake me up. And Coke does the best job to me of that, either Coke or Pepsi, but I'm a little bit more of a fan of Coke than I am Pepsi. Honorable mention definitely goes to Mountain Dew, Code Red, and Livewire. I love both of those, but do not drink them nearly as much. They're not as widely available, it seems, obviously, as Coke. But I'll go with Coke just because it helps me wake up. I love the taste. I'm going to go with Coke. Last up, Robert Austin asked me, can Johnny orders Kenny Tractor Trailer? And you guys are going to be like, huh? But there's this thing called e-fetting that I used to do. And Robert did it as well. Don't know that he still does. I know we've both grown up. I haven't done it in a long time since like teenage years. But it was a internet-based game, basically, where people would create their own wrestling organizations online people would join you would write promos back and forth leading up to the match and then whoever was behind it you'd have writers and stuff i even tried to be a writer for a couple different ones i started my own for a while it was called the world wrestling corporation wwc 
But uh, it was a lot of fun back in the day. Really helped my writing skills, I think. And one of my dream jobs was to be a creative writer for WWE or another wrestling organization. So that was a lot of fun, just coming up with storylines and stuff. But you would do these promos. You would go against your opponent. And then they would vote on who the winner was, and there would be championships, and the shows were fun to read, and it was just a lot of fun. It was kind of an RPG-type thing. Just read the text and see the results, write your promos. Johnny Orders was my first ever character. Kenny Tractor Trailer was a short-lived character of mine, and I had some others as well. I believe Brian Bosworth was another character of mine which is the same as the name of a former NFL player, I believe. But Johnny Orders, my most successful e-fetting wrestler that I created, and it was kind of based on John Cena's character. He had a brother named Bobby Orders, actually. They were a tag team for a time. But went heel at some point, which is a bad guy in wrestling speak, and became John Orders at that point, and was probably even better in that role. But, yeah, that was a lot of fun as a kid. Haven't done it in a long time. Don't know if it's still that popular or not. But that's e-fetting. And since he said, can Johnny orders Kenny Tractor trailer, I just figured I would explain what the heck e-fetting is for those of you who have no clue. So thanks to all my guests for those questions. Now, Scott Delafob, who asked me to do the midseason awards in the NFL, also wanted us to do some kind of word association. I just want to say that for next week's show, Four Quarters with Josh McKinney, the final show of 2020, episode 30, first Wednesday in December, before we take our holiday break and come back at you next year, we are going to do a word association. My wife is going to join me for part if not all of the show next week she'll be my guest and we're going to do some kind of word association for you there then so that'll be a segment we'll have next week so look forward to that scott thank you to scott matthew brian nikki one and done radio and robert for your questions i really appreciate it can't wait to do this again but that's going to lead us into our close today thank you folks so much for listening to four quarters with josh mckinney on a weekly basis as i said episode 30 next week will be our final one of this year before we take a little four-week break and very much needed things are getting a little busier for me right now with high school games starting back and starting to practice a little more with my ymca basketball team so this is a much needed break coming up but we got one more show for you next week I want to thank you for listening to this show and all of the other 28, however many you've listened to, if you listen to them all. Thank you very much. I'm just very blessed to be able to do this on a weekly basis and very excited to see how we continue to grow into the future. Thank you for listening to Four Quarters with Josh McKinney. And as always, follow me on Twitter at SuperJMac32. Like Four Quarters with Josh McKinney on Facebook. Folks, take care, stay safe. I will talk to you next week on the final episode of Four Quarters with Josh McKinney in 2020.